Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. You're listening to our new C1 Review, a podcast connecting highlights from three shows. Thanks for joining our conversation. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. I'm Greg Dalton. Today, we're talking about water, climate changes, cooking the country, and disrupting rain patterns. Droughts are getting harsh, but somehow the new normal of water hasn't sunk in. The problem is that we've been too tempted to invade our savings accounts of water, not only during dry periods, but also during wet periods. New farming methods are being tried out. Creative conservation practices and new technologies are helping stretch each gallon. But the question remains, how much water will we have in the future? What will it cost? There's an enormous tension in the water world between the human right to water and water as an economic good. And the truth is, I think it's both of those things. Up next on Climate One. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. These Climate One conversations were recorded in 2013 and 14 before a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan public forum in San Francisco. Climate disruption is changing weather around the world. Parts of America are seeing fierce droughts and then punishing storms and flooding. Scientists say the wets will get wetter and the dry periods will get drier. With water coming down in bigger bursts, many reservoirs are unable to catch the rainfall and store it for later. Water systems are stressed and farmers, city dwellers and fish are all affected. Let's start today's discussion by taking a look at who's getting water and why. I'm pleased to be joined by three people who are immersed in water issues. Brian Richter is chief water scientist at the Nature Conservancy. He's also author of Chasing Water, a guide for moving from scarcity to sustainability. Peter Glick is president and co-founder of the Pacific Institute and a renowned water expert. And Brooke Barton is director of the water program at Ceres, a nonprofit organization that works with large corporations. Here's our conversation about water conflict and solutions. Peter Glick, let's talk about water internationally. How is water connected with Islamic State and what they're doing right now? The earliest examples of conflict over water three or 4,000 years ago were in ancient Mesopotamia, the Tigris and the Euphrates River. 
today, Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. And again, unfortunately, the most recent examples are, are in the same region. Uh, it's a region where water crosses borders. It's a region where there are tensions over ideology and religion and politics and access to resources. And unfortunately, right now, in the Tigris and the Euphrates Basin, we see uh, water as a tool of conflict, water as a target of conflict, uh, water as a weapon of war. It's, it's another example of our inability really to separate politics and water. Even civil wars within countries can be water-related, Peter Glick. There are other regions in Africa, for example, where pastoralists and farmers are in conflict over control of water, over access to water points. I think as the world grows, as populations grow, as the economy grows, as demand for water grows, the scarcity of water is more and more likely to lead to conflicts of one kind or another. Brian Brichter, internationally, what are some other flashpoints for water? I had my first chance to visit Israel and Jordan, and uh, it's just so obvious how central the Jordan River and that water supply is to those countries. It forms a dividing line between Israel and Jordan. Um, and then, of course, you have the disputed West Bank, you know, right on that river as well. And those countries literally would not exist without the Jordan River. It's 90, 95% of their water supply. And yet that river now is down to less than 5% of its original volume. Basically, no water makes it to the Dead Sea anymore because it's so heavily used upstream. They, they have some real serious challenges there about how they're going to mutually utilize that water resource. Brooke Barton, how are some of the companies involved in Ceres looking at this water stress and conflict? Because clearly yeah. it's important to their business. Yeah, I mean, I think we're entering a whole new paradigm in the business community and how they think about water and how they value water. The story of Coca-Cola in India, where concerns by community in, in southern India led them to have to shut a, a bottling plant. It led to significant damage to their brand. And the company, in turn, has very much internalized what this means as a business. And in the past 10 years have invested at least $2 billion in water efficiency projects within their own operations globally, but also investing heavily in projects around their plants, really thinking about the watershed and, and putting dollars and partnerships in place to help restore rivers, to help replenish groundwater. It's become a real part of their business model. Peter Glick, you've been a big advocate of the human right to water. Is that in conflict with, uh, say, creating water markets with some of these corporations, or is, are they compatible? There's an enormous tension in the water world between the human right to water and water as an economic good. And the truth is, I think it's both of those things. In 2010, the UN formally declared a legal human right to water and sanitation. But water is also an economic good. It's fundamental to our corporate operations, to the production of food. We ought to price water because we want it to be used effectively and efficiently. But you don't want to price water in a way that makes it inaccessible to the poorest populations who need water, no matter their ability to pay. And that's a, a, an interesting challenge. Brooke Barton, how are some of the companies that are, you're involved with at Ceres taking that up? Do they support a human right to water or say, oh, that's not good for business? We don't want another human right thing. That could be complicated. <laughs> I'll grant you that American companies have not usually been at the forefront of the human rights debate. Um, but I, I do. Or the U.S. government. We're in a very early stage in understanding how companies can address human rights. But there is a lot of enthusiasm right now about how water is the new oil from a kind of financial investment perspective. There's a lot of folks on Wall Street talking about how we're going to be able to make a whole lot of money on speculation of water. And I think one of the messages that we're really trying to focus on with the investment community is that 
Water is not like oil. Water has value even if it's in the ground and in the river. And that's different from oil. We don't really put an economic value on oil if it's never going to be taken out of the ground. So this thinking about the parallels between the water markets and the oil markets, there are some flaws and a lot of opportunity, I think, to to help shape those now while we're still early in in the space of developing water markets. Brian Richter, if there is a market around water as an economic good, does the environment lose? Well, not necessarily. We can have all of those things together, but they depend very heavily upon having the institutions and the capacity to manage the water well to meet all of those benefits. But it's important because it highlights the really critical role that government has to play in regulating a market and setting the rules and making sure that the environment doesn't get left out in making sure that human access to water is provided. If you have the ability to trade water that you've saved. In other words, you're a farmer, you invest in more efficient irrigation practices, you save half of the water. You no longer need to use your full right to use water. If there's the ability to trade that water, to actually sell the water, lease the water, it's a hell of an incentive for driving conservation and driving better efficiency. There's an important point, though, that I want to emphasize. that When we gave away all the water, we didn't give it to the environment. We took it from the environment. So all of the water rights in California and most of the West, are use rights, and they're being used by humans, and they come out of the environment. If we're going to move to markets of any kind, we have to figure out how the ecosystems can participate in markets, and we haven't done that well enough. If you're just joining us, we're talking about water and Climate One today. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Brian Richter, the chief scientist for the Global Freshwater Program at the Nature Conservancy, Brooke Barton, director of the water program at Ceres, and Peter Glick, president and co-founder of the Pacific Institute. Brian Richter, you also write about some success stories. So back in about 1997, Australia went into their drought of record. It was called the Millennium Drought. They also called it the Big Dry. It lasted for about a decade. It was absolutely devastating. There were massive fish kills. There were toxic blue-green algal blooms. Farmers and dairy producers lost entire herds of cattle. Rice went out of production entirely during that time. Devastating ecologically, devastating economically. The state governments really were sort of dominant with respect to managing water allocation. But things got so bad in Australia, the federal government, the Commonwealth government stepped in and said, we're going to basically take over the water of the Murray-Darling Basin. And what the plan ultimately said is, we have to get our water use down by a third. And we have to do it really, really quickly because everything is at risk. They allocated originally about $10 billion. It's now grown to about $14 billion of investment in that one river basin to do two things. One was to buy back water rights. And second, they're investing really heavily in farmers, paying them to implement much more efficient irrigation systems. But the agreement is that most of the water that's saved goes back to the Commonwealth government. And so the combination of actually buying the water rights themselves and then paying for improved irrigation efficiency, the use is going to be brought down to a level that they feel is going to be much easier to handle um, going forward into the future, even during future droughts like the millennium drought that they just had. Peter Glick, some people think that what happens in Australia might be a harbinger for what happens here. They were doing things that we, frankly, should have been doing a long time ago and still are not doing. Rethinking water rights, aggressively figuring out how to restore our ecosystems while maintaining some form of a healthy agricultural economy. Their urban water use is half or less than half of what a Northern Californian or a Southern Californian water uses. Does that include all the beer they drink? (laughs) Yeah? Yeah. (laughs) Maybe not. Okay. The point is that 
we may be in a long-term drought, as was Australia, and we are not yet doing the things that they learned they had to do and could do successfully. Brooke Barton, are there some cool technologies and innovation out there that might save us a little bit here? There are a lot of technologies that are, that are not so new and cutting edge that still aren't being deployed. Basic conservation opportunities, even basic drip irrigation, is still not widely deployed in many parts of the agricultural economy. But on top of that, there are all kinds of very interesting technologies and use of big data, layers of information around weather patterns, evapotranspiration, data that can now be used in a much smarter way to help farmers plan when to irrigate, when to seed, when to harvest. But we see problems because the folks who are farming are not the same as the ones who own the land and therefore have a different stake in improving water efficiency. And more than anything, we simply aren't seeing as much demand from companies who are buying agricultural produce for that efficiency. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Research shows a little after the mid-century that most of the contiguous United States will be in drought conditions equivalent to two to three times the 1930s Dust Bowl. Can you please comment on what we're going to do in those time frames? Peter Glick? The evidence is already clear that the hydrologic cycle is being affected by climate change. Temperatures are going up. Precipitation patterns are changing. Storm frequency and intensity is changing. And so we have to think about water sustainable management in the context of a changing climate, not a static climate. And so it makes the idea of conservation and efficiency and smart technology and better economics all that much more important in the context of a changing climate. Let's have our next question at Climate One. I'm John Hurst. I'm a chemist. Do any of you go home at night and ask the question, are there enough people on the earth? Population, often the elephant in the room. Peter Glick? Yes, absolutely. All of our problems, I think, would be less severe with a smaller population than a bigger population, especially our water problems. Having said that, we do have a responsibility to meet the basic needs for water and sanitation for everyone, no matter how many people there are. So it's not either or. Let's go to our next question. Thank you. Hi, my name is Stanhope Gould. I'm a retired journalist. The pressure on groundwater has led uh, Lester Brown to write that the groundwater pressure and the uh, melting of the glaciers has created the greatest threat to human food security in the history of the race. Anybody agree or disagree with that? Brian Richard? The best available information on that is that about a third of all the water sources on the planet are being used so heavily that the people that rely upon them are experiencing shortages of water. About half of the world's population is dependent upon those places, but the most frightening thing to me is that three-quarters of all irrigated agriculture relies upon water sources that are experiencing water shortages. And so, yes, we have a very, very serious issue there. And there are certain crops, tomatoes, corn, wheat, are situated in disproportionately areas of water stress. Let's go to our last audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Elon Fantz, I work in uh, water and energy efficiency in the Bay Area. There are some countries, Australia, Israel, who have been really proactive with their water efficiency measures. What are the main factors that are standing between us and having that sort of water efficiency future? Why aren't we doing all the things that we can do? Uh, Pricing, water's still cheap, education, the assumption that it's going to rain next year, lack of commitment on the part of water agencies, all of those things are, are factors. Been discussing solutions to a hot and thirsty world with Brian Richter of the Nature Conservancy, 
Peter Glick from the Pacific Institute and Brooke Barton of Ceres. You're listening to Climate One. Asked where their water comes from, most people think of rain or maybe streams flowing from mountains. We often don't think about the water we can't see underground. As California, Texas, and other states face multi-year droughts, more and more water is being pumped from the ground. Aquifers once seemed limitless, but farmers and others are now pulling out water faster than it can be replenished. Joining me now are three water experts who are looking for alternatives through conservation, recycling, desalinization, and more. Debbie Davis is Community and Rural Affairs Advisor to California Governor Jerry Brown. Felicia Marcus is Chair of California State Water Resources Control Board. And Buzz Thompson is the Director of the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University. Here's our conversation about the watery underworld. Felicia, Marcus, let's start with you. Put this current drought in context. How bad is it relative to other droughts we've seen in our lifetime? It is really, really bad. Technically, this is the third least amount of precipitation by a smidgen, pretty close that we've had, but the impact of it is infinitely greater because since 1924, 1977, the other two years that were slightly drier, we've grown by millions of people. You have far more agricultural production. You have more endangered and threatened fish and wildlife species who don't have the resilience they once did, and so the impact is considerable. Debbie Davis. I'll let you know how bad this drought is when it's over. The fact is, is we don't know how long this drought is going to last, and we're in a world of hurt already, but it might continue next year and the year after that. Buzz Thompson, a quote from Mother Jones says, to live off surface water is to live off your paycheck. To rely on groundwater is to live off savings. So tell us the relationship between groundwater, surface water, and how that matters during a drought like right now. Groundwater aquifers naturally fill up during wet periods of time, and then we can use that water during dry periods of time to help us through the drought. The problem, however, is that we've been too tempted to invade our savings accounts of water, not only during dry periods, but also during wet periods. And ultimately, that's going to mean that that groundwater is not available to us when we really need it. Felicia Marcus. You have some areas where there's been such great subsidence of the earth from overpumping that canals are running backward, that uh, infrastructure is crumbling, that there's a loss of flood control. People realize that we really have to do something about it now in order to be more resilient in the face of climate change. Debbie Davis. Ultimately, we have to stop making this artificial distinction between surface and groundwater. And we need to manage every drop of water as part of one water system. Let's talk about the incentives for conservation. If if we're all drawing from a particular aquifer, you know, if I don't use it, someone else will use it. So there's very little incentive, Felicia Marcus, for conservation when there's no rules, no penalty for extreme use. The Public Policy Institute of California did a very timely poll that said 75% of the public want mandatory conservation regs, in part because they want their local agencies to tell them what they ought to do, and they want everybody else to have to do the same thing. So you have a common engagement. 
And as we know that droughts are going to be more frequent, we do know from the Australian experience where they kept thinking they were in a three-year drought cycle for at least six years, as the story goes, and then it ended up being a 10- or 12-year millennial drought, that the lesson that they learned was that they wish they had conserved more sooner, and that is true for every local community. So it's in self-interest. Let's talk about lawns and culture, because it's a little bit of the American dream, having a, a decorative lawn in front and back. Tell us about your past experience with grass. <laughs> I don't know where to start. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I grew up, like many people, in Los Angeles. Everybody had a front lawn. But the difference then was everybody played outside. We were all out on those lawns all the time. But increasingly, folks are not out on their front lawns. You know, if the only person that walks on your lawn is the guy that mows the lawn, maybe you should lose the lawn. Buzz Thompson, do you have a lawn, and do you think that, um, <laughs> that we ought to rethink lawns in this era of drought? Okay, you put me on the spot now. So I do have a lawn. It's in the back. And my wife and I have just purchased a smart irrigation controller for not only our lawn, but also for our gardens. If it rains, it automatically turns off the entire irrigation system. It also takes local weather into account and adjusts how long your sprinkler system or your drip irrigation system is on in order to minimize the amount of water that you're using. Now, I also have to tell you, when I was a kid, what I remember on the uh, backyard was that we had one of those slip and slides. You would hook it up to the hose and the water would run continuously. So we've come some ways. Let's talk about what's meaningful individual action. We do jokes about shower with a friend, that sort of thing. So Felicia Marcus, what can individuals do that really matters? There are the obvious, like being conscious of how much water you use and turning the water off when brushing, loading your dishwasher full and your laundry when it's full before you do a load. And gray water systems, people are retrofitting their homes so they can take their sink and shower and washing machine wastewater and are able to recycle it for use outdoor in their garden. That's another way to extend your water use. What I like to tell people is they don't have to do everything, but the fact if all of us think about what we can do and just do that or do what comes easily and then move on to other things if we care to. There are a lot of us. But Buzz Thompson, agriculture uses 80% of water in California. Some individuals might think, whatever I do, it's a drop in the bucket. It's really ag. So what's ag doing to use water more wisely during the drought? Throughout the western United States, agriculture has done, I think, actually a very impressive job of reducing its water use through the irrigation equipment that it uses. Having said that, ag still has significant opportunities. There, are, I think, are opportunities of changing the way in which we actually irrigate some of our crops. There are opportunities to actually sort of water-starve the plants at the very early stages of their production and in some cases actually have exactly the same production, if not slightly better production, while using less water. Felicia Marcus? I agree with Buzz. There have been an incredible amount of advances farmers farming by iPad to be able to precision water and feed the plants. The other complexity that sometimes people don't realize, in agriculture, it's more connected. So one farm's runoff is what re-goes into the stream, becomes another person's water, or becomes a refuge's water. Well, what about crop selection? Growing alfalfa, feeding it to cows, cotton, rice, etc. when water is so precious, is there a role for the state to play there, or should it just be the market at force? 
Debbie Davis. That question is best answered at the local level and best answered based on what water resources are available in that local area and how can those best be put to use both to serve the local needs but also, frankly, to serve the worldwide needs. Buzz Thompson, any thoughts on alfalfa, cotton? It's not the market at work because, at least in some local areas, we don't charge agriculture the true value of the water that they're using. In some regions, that water is subsidized. And so if you do not charge people the full cost of that water, then they will utilize it for crops that probably should not economically be produced in that particular area. Uh, So one of the things that I think is imperative is that we begin to charge the full cost of water to everyone, not only agriculture, but also urban areas, so that everyone recognizes the value of that water and will conserve to the degree that they can. Buzz Thompson is director of the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford. Other guests today at Climate One are Felicia Marcus, chair of the State Water Resources Control Board, and Debbie Davis from the state of California. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk a little more about water pricing, Felicia Marcus, reforming pricing of water so that it pay more for it in a drought or pay more for it when you use more. The Alliance for Water Efficiency nationally just recently released a report talking about rate structures across the country that are both fair, equitable, and effective. And many studies have found that pricing really is, in the urban context, the single most important thing you actually can do to help people conserve water. There's a whole series of technological advances, systems that not only can tell you how much water you're using, but can give you feedback from your water district about how your neighbors are doing. And there's a lot of behavioral research about how that's a powerful motivating force. Not so much in the drought shaming thing that we see in a lot of the stories, but people want to be a part of a community and they want to know kind of how they're doing compared to other people. And if they see that other people are sort of doing better in the similar circumstance, they want to do better. That really just makes common sense. But there are pricing mechanisms as well that get people to think about a little bit more about how they're using their water. It gives them an incentive to be a little bit more efficient. Debbie Davis, you did some work on establishing water as, as, a, as a human right, yet water is underpriced. We don't pay the full value for it. Should we pay more for water? I would love to see more equity in how much people pay because there are communities that are paying a lot for water that, you know, they might make on average $14,000 a year and they pay up to $200 a month for their water. But certainly I think it's reasonable to say that folks who are conserving water and being responsible might pay a lower rate. But I also hope that we don't just have a system where you can use as much as you can pay for. Felicia Marcus? Well, quite a few agencies around the country have adopted rate structures, whether you call them budget-based rate structures or foundational-based rate structures, where they can change their rates to get a foundational base rate that pays for their basic infrastructure and then have a tiered ranking of some sort where if you use much more, you pay more because that's going to cost the water agency a lot more to go after that next drop of water. And the public steps up. But they want information to understand why it is they're being asked to pay more and that it's going to be fair. Uh, Fairness and transparency is incredibly important in civil society. And the more agencies can do that and explain why they need it, the more responsive people will be. But Thompson, should some of California's environmental regulations be relaxed because of the drought? Serve people instead of fish? If you take all of the various sectors in which we use water today, agriculture, urban, and the environment, In a period of drought, the sector that gets cut the most is the environment. It's always the environment 
that we pull the water away from first. And that has significant implications for the fish that rely upon our river and stream flows. So my answer is no. What we need to do is to find ways in which to stretch our available water supply, which is storage. Personally, I think it should be through groundwater storage more than through surface water storage, but we should be storing more water. And to the degree possible, we should be conserving water and reclaiming water. But embedded in that is an expectation that with a certain amount of water that people are entitled to that's going to somehow come back. And there's some questions about whether the last few decades or centuries have been unusually wet and that there's more water in people's minds and on paper than is actually in reality, Felicia Marcus. We've been living beyond our means if you're taking a longer-term view. How do we get smarter about how we use a precious resource? Uh, Frequently people say there's all one thing, it's all storage or it's all conservation or that one thing will solve our problems. And my view is we need belt suspenders, flying monkeys, whatever it will take, and we've got to break apart the historical dialogues that oversimplified things and say all of the above. We're going to have to have storage, big, small, above ground, below ground, wherever we can find it. We're going to have to augment it with recycled water as often as we can. It is not rocket science. This is just the application of energy and uh, money to a problem. I mean, Australia retrofitted quite a few number of their cities to capture the runoff in urban areas. It's cisterns under parks to capture it. Uh, Los Angeles is retrofitting communities, not just with rain barrels, but with French drains at the end of driveways, permeable surfaces on the driveways, swales instead of curbs that capture water. What they're getting out of it is they're doing flood control in areas that used to flood. They're not anymore. They're getting water supply by that water going back down into the groundwater basins. They're getting water quality because that water is now not running off the streets, picking up motor oil, dog droppings, pesticides, you name it, and making a beeline for the ocean. And they're greening a community that's the most park-poor community in the entire country per capita. And so we have to get to the area of integrated thinking and just figuring out what it takes to make it work, with conservation being the first among equals. Let's drill a little bit on climate change. Are we going to have more droughts? Are they going to be more severe? And what does it mean for water security? Buzz Thompson? We don't know for sure exactly what's going to happen in the face of climate change. But we do know that if you look back over history of the Western United States, over the past thousand years, the last 150 years actually look pretty good. We've had droughts probably about every 10 to 15 years. And we're used to those droughts being relatively short. If you look at the records from a period of about 1,000 to 1,300 A.D., what you find is that there were some droughts that were much longer than anything that we have seen today. There were periods of time that sometimes lasted 80 to 140 years in which, although not every year was a dry year, we never recovered from the droughts that we had. So the first thing is, even without climate change, We need to be prepared for much worse droughts than we've seen over the last 150 years. Then climate change is going to bring extremes. The droughts will probably be worse. The floods are going to be worse. How do you manage for situations that we have never encountered in our own experience? Let's include our audience questions. Welcome. I have a question about groundwater. Why don't we know how much we have? It seems to me that's the very first step before we can have any regs or recommendations about it. Uh, You're completely right. 
because you can't manage what you can't measure. You've got to know what your thresholds are. You have to know what your geology is, to be sure, because every basin is very, very different. Some refill every year quite easily uh, and are used you know, as a very regular storage. Others are denser in pockets, and it takes longer. So it's, it is more complex than just the sheer measurement, but it is definitely doable. It's just that people have been loath to do it because it's been this kind of secret bank account they could count on without thinking about limits. We're talking about the drought at Climate One. Let's have our next question. As I understand it, the uh, urban use of, the, of all the water, considering environment and agriculture and so on, runs roughly about 10% of the total amount used. Now, uh, if we all cut at uh, 20%, we're talking 2% of the water use. We seem to be spending an awful lot of time going for the people who use the least water, and it seems totally unfair. What do you think? Buzz Thompson? Obviously, if what we want to do is to try to make more water available, then the first place you look is to where all the water is being utilized today, and that is agriculture. It is not agriculture's fault that the crops that we require also require a lot of water. But to the degree that we can develop new technologies and approaches that save water on agriculture, to the degree that we can develop new institutional mechanisms to do that, we're obviously going to be saving a lot more water than we do in the urban areas. Having said that, we all need to be thinking about ways in which we can conserve and save water. Debbie Davis. Ag is not a monolith. There are lots of different kinds of agriculture and lots of different kinds of farmers. And there are many who work very hard to be as conservative in their water use as they can. But the fact is it takes water to grow things. We're not asking people to dramatically change their lifestyles. We're just asking people to use a high-efficiency toilet, install an aerator, install a low-flow shower head. I don't personally think we're asking that much of our urban communities. And there are huge benefits because the water that we're taking, it's not just that drop of water that we're saving. It's also the energy. It's also the impacts on the environment. It does have huge benefits, even though it's a smaller percentage across the board. Last question. Welcome. I was wondering, what is your opinion of having moratoriums on new buildings to decrease demand? Water supply is a building constraint. Debbie Davis. I think that the ability for water agencies to stop development because of water supply issues, it's an inelegant way to get at a huge challenge we have. We really need to get better at that. And again, it gets back to, you know, being able to manage as a system, as a community, as opposed to in our silos. Buzz Thompson, last word. We definitely need to coordinate our land use and our water resources to a much greater degree than we have so that in areas which are water short, We don't continue to grow as if water was available to whatever degree we want. And second of all, so that when we actually build, for example, subdivisions, we don't pave over recharge areas where we need that water to actually percolate down into our groundwater aquifers so that we have that natural recharge to our natural bank accounts. We've been discussing America's groundwater resources with Debbie Davis, an advisor to California Governor Jerry Brown. Felicia Marcus, chair of California's State Water Resources Control Board. And Buzz Thompson, director of the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University. You're listening to Climate One. Join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at Climate One. 
We're switching now to salt water. The world's oceans are sick. Supplies of many kinds of fish are declining, and the oceans are getting more acidic as they soak up carbon pollution that humans are pumping into the air. That is hurting coral, the foundation of the ocean food web that feeds about a billion people. To discuss the state of the oceans and why they matter to people who live far from them, I'm joined by Jason Scores, director of the Center for the Blue Economy at the Monterey Institute of International Studies, and Mary Hagedorn, a research scientist at the Smithsonian Institution. She's also with the Hawaiian Institute of Marine Biology. My third guest is Michael Jones, president of the Maritime Alliance, a business group in San Diego. Here's our conversation about how fossil fuels are affecting the oceans and how to be an ocean-smart shopper for fish to put on the dinner table. Mary Hagedorn, let's begin with you. If the Pacific Ocean was a patient, how would you assess the overall health of the ocean? I would say that it's probably a middle-aged American <laughs> that's probably eaten too many hamburgers and smokes. <laughs> not, too, not too healthy. Okay. No. <laughs> and and uh, what are the causes of that poor health? Most of them are caused by us humans. And the local ones are caused by pollution, sedimentation, poor farming practices, et cetera, et cetera, from sources like cities and farms and deforestation. The global ones are caused by our overuse of fossil fuels. And um, the fossil fuels are burnt. It produces CO2, which goes up into the atmosphere. It warms the earth. And then at the same time, it is sort of uh, sucked down into the ocean. And it's causing the ocean to become more acidic. And this acidity is corrosive to a lot of marine life in the ocean from the base of our food chain all the way up to fish and whales and things like that. So it's having profound effects on every creature in our ocean. Do you see need for further research? Are there tools that need to be developed because we don't understand what's happening in the oceans because of climate change? The Smithsonian is just starting a really large program. Um, it's called Marine Geos, and that stands for Global Earth Observatory. It will be a long-term uh, monitoring system throughout the world, and we'll be taking measurements around the world to try and extract that information about what's happening in the ocean and where is it changing fastest, and, and what, what does that say about the biodiversity? And Jason Scores, let's get you on that. What do you think are the big unknowns about the oceans that we ought to put more research and resources to understanding what's happening? You know, we're trying to work in the climate adaptation space, so getting people to say, all right, climate change is real, what do we do in the coastal zones? And the level of detail of a lot of the, the science right now is at kind of more state level or large regional level. So, you know, your average city planner says, okay, I understand it's happening, but what does it mean really at a fine level? So that's really needed. And I think I would make one other observation which is there's always going to be a lot of uncertainty in climate change, but yet uncertainty can't be an excuse for inaction. And what we're trying to say is within some relatively reasonable range of consensus, we know the costs are going to be so high that we can't wait for a level of precision that some people might be used to. We still need to act. 
they say in the military, if you wait until you're certain, you're probably dead. So you can't wait for <laughs> certainty to act. But what should a city manager do right now? What kind of adaptation, yeah. uh, buffering against uh, sea level rise, acidification, what, what can yeah. be done? Yeah. Um, on the Nature Conservancy is working with local communities on building some tools where you can actually look at scenarios and say, okay, um, census block by census block, what's going to be underwater, what the 100-year storm might look at. And they can take that and go, okay, maybe we don't want to put that power plant right there or maybe the road that new road so start the conversation is part one and then i think we want to think about um creating new ecological models new interactions between the the science and policy and such that you know people are living more um in harmony with the, the coastal environments that might actually open up a lot of business opportunity people often think of climate in terms of centuries or thousands of years and sea level rise is like well what's what's the sea level rise been what seven inches in the last hundred years doesn't seem like much you know is this something that could really affect people in in our lifetime it's sad that we need major natural disasters for people to kind of see it but now we are and when you get the thousand year storm every 10 years it's not a thousand year storm anymore and you have to start changing your mentality so this is immediate, this is now, this is accelerating, and the good side is people realize that. People realize that in Hawaii, Mary Hagedorn? Oh, it's difficult to say. <laughs> I have a brother who doesn't believe in it. <laughs> He's in Hawaii. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, but I do agree with Jason. I think that, especially in the Pacific, you have a lot of islands that they're less than a foot above the ocean. You know, so seven inches is quite a bit for them. And if you add a storm onto that, that's really quite substantial. And that means whole islands and whole populations moving. I think people are thinking about it. I think that there's, there, especially in some of the smaller, lower-lying islands of this Pacific, this is a huge concern. Michael Jones, San Diego, big maritime town, Navy town. They've just redone downtown San Diego. That's right along the waterfront. People who've made those investments, or is there awareness of uh, sea level rise in San Diego? I think we're a little schizophrenic right now. The port of San Diego thinks it's in the vanguard of, of discussing this, but people haven't really started thinking about what are we going to do? How far are we going to move inland? Is it a half a mile? Is it a mile? particularly when you have a relatively flat landscape for the first mile or two. I mean, how are you going to condemn all those places and say we're going to build another harbor? Those are incredibly important but difficult political, economic, social decisions that have to be made. We believe that one of the opportunities is large floating platforms, that we begin to put harbors, airports, and let them float so we don't have to worry as much about how high is high when the water is going up. And I think it is part of our future. Unfortunately, the United States is not really doing much related to large floating platforms yet. It sounds cool. It sounds very expensive. Actually, it's not more expensive. And you have to remember that in 1809, uh, Bristol had the first floating harbor. If you go back to uh, the Roman days, Carthage had a whole harbor that was floating. Uh, in the Second World War, the Germans weren't going to give us the keys to Dieppe and, uh, and Brest. Uh, so we built two floating harbors, and for eight months after the invasion, the British were still using their harbor. And you also think the same for desal plants. Desalination plants should be built offshore for the same reasons. Why are we putting a plant that's cost a half a billion or a billion dollars on the shore and then having a pipe that goes out three miles to pull the water in and then a pipe three miles out to push the brine back out so that it dissipates quickly when we could have a ship three miles offshore that pushes the fresh water in? 
And when Bandache happened, the United States sent an uh, aircraft carrier, and they have enormous That was the Indonesian tsunami. Yes, the Indonesian tsunami. Every Navy ship has desal. And around the world, there's over 15,000 desal plants. But the United States has not been very encouraging of desal, although we are the world leader in the technology. So we believe floating desal plants makes perfect sense. Jason scores desal a good idea for the future water needs? I think it should be considered, especially when the alternatives are sucking more water out of streams that kill fish. Uh, you know, terrestrial habitat suck water in anyway because you get saltwater intrusion. I always think conservation is the first, you know, first line. So I would push the conservation to the limit before I was in favor of a desal. But then at that point, I think it's certainly viable. If you're just joining us on the radio, Jason Scores, the director of the Center for the Blue Economy at the Monterey Institute of International Studies. Our other guests today at Climate One are Michael Jones, president of the Maritime Alliance in San Diego, and Mary Hagedorn with the Smithsonian Institution. Jason Scores, a managed retreat is the phrase that's used for moving homes and businesses back from the coast. Is that a foregone conclusion? I would say yes. There's no question the economics of armoring. You're talking about tens of billions of dollars to armor the coast. Then you have huge environmental impacts of, you know, the sand migration and you have, you know, huge problems with the coastal environment that gets created by that. So I don't think we could do that up and down the coast. So some managed retreat, I, I pretty much think is in the cards. And then also, isn't it the fact that if some people armor their property, that kind of negatively impacts their neighbors because it just sort of shifts the water? It, it, you know, you can protect yourself, but you're really harming your neighbors. There is very strong private property rights, obviously, in the United States. If you have the money, you can throw the riprap and the seawall and whatever it is. But then, like you said, you create the erosion increases around you, and so you have these negative impacts. And this still hasn't been fully worked out in the legal system, and we don't really understand this. But I think going forward, it is going to be a more systemic kind of regulatory government thinking on this because it's not sustainable. But here's where I think the opportunity part comes in. This managed retreat that we're talking about or this rethinking of some of the infrastructure could come with actually a lot more public access, and it could come back with some ecological restoration. I could start envisioning some really cool new restored wetlands with the kind of people move back a little ways, and then you have some waterways and national parks that are much bigger and actually be very economically revitalizing for a lot of areas and, and very nice places to live. So I think you could really see a lot of the opportunity there. But then who buys out the property owners that are impacted by this? I mean, Michael Jones, U.S. is doing a little bit of that along uh, the Jersey Shore after Hurricane Sandy, but not everyone. Well, it's a very interesting question, but I don't think anybody's got an answer. Imperial Beach in San Diego uh, spent $2 million to dredge and then put new sand down. It was gone inside of months. Florida recently, there was an article saying that they're running out of sand to dredge to put on their beaches. So we can only do this for so long before we create other problems for ourselves. We need to do a much better job of understanding the interrelationships between what we're doing in the ocean and where we put things. And it, it all becomes one big bundle, which makes it more difficult, but it, it, it has to be done. We have to look at this in a holistic manner. Mary Hagedorn, you said once that people have a greater understanding of 
forests and the impact of forests on climate change than they do the ocean, and that half of the world's oxygen comes from the ocean. I didn't realize that. Um, if you think about it, you know, every second breath that you take, the, some plant in the ocean has made that for you. And so um, the things that we're doing to the ocean, especially in terms of destabilizing ecosystems, we don't know how it's going to affect that very essential you know, ecosystem service that the ocean does for us, creating oxygen. So that's the bottom line for us in all of this. I mean, cities can move, people can move, but if we run out of oxygen, we're in real deep trouble. And let's talk about coral. You're doing some research on, on coral, the base of the food chain. What's happening with coral and why is there cause for concern and what's some of the, the solutions you're working on? 25% of everything in the ocean lives on a coral reef at some point. And so they're very important in terms of nurseries and maintaining our, our fisheries, basically. And um, we're, we're losing them because of temperature changes, but also diseases are a big problem. And so what we're doing at the Smithsonian is we've created a frozen repository for coral, we now have 1%, which sounds small, <laughs> but it's really quite big. 1% of all the coral in the, in the world is now in a frozen repository. And the idea would be that if perhaps in the future the oceans were more like they were, say, 50 years ago, we might be able to use this frozen but alive coral and reseed the ocean with it. And so that's sort of a Noah's Ark kind of thing, planning for some dark days to, yeah. to, to bring back. Exactly. And it's not just coral. We're working on fish as well, and we're working on algae and a, a number of organisms in the ocean. Jason Scores, what does this mean, the, the bleaching events and, and the deterioration of, of coral mean for subsistence fishermen that are account for a lot of economies in Indonesia and other places? A lot of the world just relies on daily catch to survive. Yeah, yeah there's a, the estimates are around a billion people who who get a, a large share of their daily protein from, from, from fishing and from seafood. And, you know, the one positive, though, is, is that we've seen corals be pretty resilient in some places where they are protected. Now, obviously, big macro phenomenon like ocean acidification and climate change is uh, difficult to reverse. But coral, I think, have actually rebounded a lot in Micronesia where they've been under protection. I'd like to ask each of you, as people who are really concerned about the health of the oceans, do you eat fish? What kind of fish, Mary Hagedorn? I do eat fish, and I eat a lot of Pacific fish. And Mahi-mahi um, from Hawaii, I'm probably <laughs> It's yeah. very good, and ahi. And we do have a very robust aquaculture uh, industry in Hawaii. I think people are very interested in it. It's highly prized. So I think that is an area that Hawaii would love to grow in even more. Jason Scores? I've been vegan for 20 years, um, so no, I do not eat any fish. But uh, I think fish can be done sustainably. Um, the key thing with sustainable fish is most of it's mislabeled. More than 50% of fish is mislabeled. So even you go through all the certification, you do everything, you read the seafood watch card, you do all that, um, more than half the time it's not what you think it is. So that undermines the system. Michael Jones? Uh, I eat fish, and I believe that aquaculture is one of the solutions for the world. Uh, I don't believe we can create enough protein without it, and I would buy local. I'd like to invite our audience participation. Welcome. Hi, my name is Tim Dowdy. I'm an alumni here. Uh, in terms of uh, generating revenue to solve some of these complex problems is uh, a so-called rain tax, which would be a tax calculated on impervious surfaces on a property lot. Is that a viable policy tool in terms of uh, generating revenue for us to solve some of these problems. Rain tax, there's something sure to, a sure winner in Washington. Let's, uh, <laughs> yeah, first I've heard of that. Jason Scores? 
For those people who don't know, once you start paving over area, water then runs into the sea. It often runs with oil and chemicals and nitrate, you know. So it's polluted water in the sea, bad. It also doesn't allow the aquifer to recharge. So we have new technology now of these permeable surfaces, and there are now tax incentives. I don't know anything about the rain tax, but I know about the, the, the carrot side of the you know, helping developers take it and giving them incentives. So you kind of get these win-wins. You know, we can boost jobs with new technology. We can, you know, develop and have our houses and our businesses and then also prevent pollution. You know, this is not rocket science. This is more a political will and a kind of a social transformation. That's really what it's more the the, the impeditives. Paving stones instead of concrete. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Jordan Sanchez. I'm a student here at Monterey Institute. Um, given the attention deficit of the American people in the media cycles that we're living in now and the political climate, um, how do you guys see the role of, uh, of private industry in forging a path forward? There hasn't been a lot of outside investment in the blue tech for the most part. Uh, some areas in robotics, uh, certainly desalination has, but many are small companies that don't get venture capital or uh, there hasn't been banks that have focused on it. So there are some very, very real issues in terms of financing this. Uh, I tell elected officials and economic development people, it's like opening up your door and finding a cornucopia of wonderful things that you didn't know existed there. You know, as a child, I wanted candy. Today, as an economic development person, I want really good, sustainable, clean, fast-growing, export-oriented, blue-collar jobs. Mary Hagedorn. I would like to add to that, too, because I think it has repercussion in terms of biodiversity and um, ecosystems, health and ecology, because unless people value it, they will not pay attention to maintain it. It's critical for all aspects of the ocean and certainly our health on the planet. We've been talking about how to support the seas with Jason Scores, director of the Center for the Blue Economy at the Monterey Institute of International Studies, Mary Hagedorn, a research scientist at the Smithsonian Institution, and Michael Jones, president of San Diego's Maritime Alliance. Thank you for joining us this hour. Free podcasts of this and other conversations are available in the iTunes store by searching Climate One. Follow us on Twitter using our handle at Climate One. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the clean energy initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm your host and executive producer, Greg Dalton. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineers are John Rieger and Valerie Castro. Claire Schoen is the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.